Yes, welcome to For and Against, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play, all the, all the big picture stuff in the world of sport. I'm Paul Roach, and joining me on the panel all the way from Bleak City is Stephen Riley. G'day, Paul. G'day, fellas. And uh, joining me here at For and Against headquarters is David Gill. G'day, Bear. G'day, Paul. And Simon Johnson. Jono, how are you? Always good to be here, Roachie. Uh, indeed, indeed it is. Coming up in the show, the broadcast contract stoush between Cricket Australia and Channel 7. Also, Qantas abandoning the Wallabies. And a little later, we delve into the nostalgic in light of the 20th anniversary of the Sydney Olympics and also Dean Jones's passing. Of course, we'll be finishing with Red Card, Yellow Card, where we celebrate the off-field indiscretions of various kinds. Don't forget to use that hash card, hash card, hashtag RCYC, if you see one to let us know. Speaking of the socials, you can get us on Twitter at forandagainst, underscore. Uh, also, email forandagainst at hotmail.com. And Jono, take us away with the Insta and the FB our uh, handle is at for and against for Instagram and Facebook page is coming still, Rochi. Are you serious? <laughs> it's there. It's there. It'll be there by the, <laughs> by the time episode three hits the airwaves. The Facebook page will be there. It takes, a, it takes a long time to put up a Facebook page. It apparently. really does. Yeah. And for someone who's not even on Facebook himself, the irony is immense, Yeah, well, Richie. you know, it's, we'll be docking your pay, mate. Okay, let's get straight into it. You might have noticed a slight decrease in the amount of live sport being played recently and the attendant lack of certainty about future fixtures. Now with the summer almost upon us, the concerns of the summer codes and their broadcasters take centre stage and it seems that Cricket Australia has got a fight on its hands with its relatively new broadcaster Channel 7. Channel 7 is effectively demanding a price cut given what they see as a compromised season 2020-21. Jono, as I understand it. Bring us up to speed. Sure, Rochi. Well, if there's anything that gets us excited here at For and Against, it's got to be it's lawyers good at contractual paces. Yes. So I'm excited, and I hope everyone else is too. Um, yeah, you're spot on there, Rochi. So Channel 7 has issued a breach notice to Cricket Australia and has refused to pay the full amount of an interim payment, which was due a couple of weeks ago. Um, so Channel 7, as we may remember, signed a long-term deal a year or two mm. ago. 450 million bucks for a six-year deal. And the issue, as you say, is that Cricket Australia hasn't been able to guarantee a full summer of high-quality cricket in accordance with its contractual obligations. Basically, the issue is I think that Cricket Australia refused to discount because all of the matches are actually going ahead. So mm. the, from the Cricket Administration's point of view, we're providing the product. Channel 7 should pay the full amount. What's it? What's it hinge on here? Is it? Is it the word high? You mentioned the word high quality. Is that a quote from from a, a legal document? Or? No, no, I don't think so. I think that what it hinges on is what is the fair value of the product that Channel Seven is going to be um, producing and showing on their TV screens. And from Channel Seven's perspective, they say, well, if you're looking at a big bash leg where you can't have any of the international stars because they're not travelling, or you can't have any of the Australian players because they're playing against New Zealand, which was the case up until quite recently, then who really wants to watch a bunch of grade cricketers going around um, as part of the BBL? Nothing wrong with grade cricketers, Joe. Well, this is true. <laughs> one of our stable mates uh, on, on the airwaves. But, yeah, look, it's a tough one, and I think it's been a bit of a baptism of fire for the new um, cricket CEO, Nick Hockley. So he took over from Kevin Roberts, 
and it's been a really tough one. I think uh, James Warburton, who is the head of Channel 7, described mm. uh, cricket's administration as a train wreck. So welcome to the job um, for Nick Hockley. That's a bit of a tough one. Um, but yeah, look, it's it's really tough because Cricket Australia's positioning on this has been pretty woeful, don't you think? Because earlier in the year, things were so bad that um, they were looking at um, laying people off, that finances were really terrible. Yet at the same time, they're saying to the TV networks, nothing to see here. Ah, uh, Simon, Simon, Simon. Now, I have been criticising Cricket Australia for many, many years. You know? They give amateur hour a bad name. But <laughs> but in this case, I think they're they're okay in this one. Channel 7, to me, are, are missing not only... Are they? Do they need to just suck this up? They are missing a golden opportunity. I, I really, Cricket Australia doing everything they can. They're going to provide a full season of cricket. Channel Seven need to pay for it. Would have thought so. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Gil? Yeah, I'm. I'm with you on this one, Stephen. And I, you know, there's not that much live sport to watch on TV. And I think the amount of live sport available on 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 TV this summer will be less than usual. So I think it's unlikely that Channel Seven will actually be feeling any pain in the in the form of decreased ratings. Um, but you know, when uh, Rochi referred to the lawyers on the show, and I think here we need to draw a subtle distinction between lawyers and litigators, because <laughs> I think the the letter written by Channel Channel Seven to to Cricket Australia was clearly written by a litigator, and they go in with all guns blazing, and they're threatening to terminate the contract. Whether or not they have any contractual grounds to terminate the contract, I think is probably open to question, and will depend on the um, the terms of the contract. But it seems like the opening blow in a long long negotiation. So it's a bit of an ambit claim? Yeah, look, it's definitely an aggressive move by Channel 7 and the reality is there's probably a bunch of negotiations going on behind the scenes. So you've got the um, the open correspondence and what's being reported in the media mm. and then you've no doubt got some negotiations going on in the background and they're positioning themselves to get a discount. And this is what's happening with a few of the other sports. We know that Channel 7 and Foxtel negotiated a, di a discount with the AFL, so they got a 10 or 15% discount on their deal. Channel 9 and Fox renegotiated the NRL deal as well. All of these networks paid way overs for the product two or three years ago, and a global pandemic has probably just contributed even more to the fact that they're thinking to themselves, we need to negotiate a lower amount. Yeah, look, I get the commercial angle. Fair enough. Yeah, you don't, if you don't ask, you don't get. But I think Channel 7 is playing a dangerous game here. They're risking the the interest of the punter. I, th I think the issue we're seeing here is that we've got investors, Channel 7, who are not believers, right? And mm. I draw a contrast to a few years ago when Channel 10 picked up this little unwanted experiment mm. called the Big Bash League and turned, you know, Afghan spin bowlers into stars, West Indian all-rounders into stars. You know, Channel 7's talking about, oh, no, those international players won't be here. Guess what? Channel 10 made them into stars. And Channel 7 having the opportunity to bring in and own a whole new generation of cricket heroes. And they're, uh, they're not just undercutting themselves, they're undercutting the product and they'll pay for it with the putter. I feel like it's it's also unfair on Cricket Australia because it's it's kind of like they almost would be having a double whammy because they're going to lose a huge amount in ticket, ticket revenue because of the pandemic. So they're more reliant on this broadcasting revenue than ever before. And, you know, per my prior point, I'm not convinced yet that Channel 7 is really going to suffer anything in terms of decreased mm. or reduced ratings over the summer period. So it'd be interesting to yeah. see what those ratings are. Yeah, concur. And, and, and if let's say they do suffer loss, right? They've entered into this with their. They've gone into this contract with their eyes wide open, or at least they should have. And whilst a pandemic may have been unlikely, I point to Wimbledon, the, the, as in the tournament, who who took out specific pandemic insurance a few years ago, and obviously that 
that paid for itself uh, many times over, no doubt, as a consequence of them cancelling the tournament this year. So, you know, there are remedies available or there are precautions perhaps available. You know, you, it, this is all about managing risk, right? And my, maybe this is an unforeseen risk, but it's one of those low probability, high impact kind of things. Um, so, you know, I've got, I've got no sympathy, like I think a couple of people here, for Channel 7, I must say. They paid the money. You, you, that's, that, that's the way it is. Oh, well, I'm, I'm still on Channel 7's side. I mean, I think the reality Why? is they're not, well, they're not getting what they paid for. Aren't and they? I don't think so. Like, uh, particularly if some of those games can't go ahead with the same well, that's an quality of players, which is up in the air at the moment. So in recent times, obviously, the Afghanistan game's been cancelled and the one-day... Postponed. Postponed, Technically, sorry. but and no, you're the, right. Yeah. The Australian-New Zealand series has been mm-hmm. postponed as well mm-hmm. by a year. So it may well be that it, it can go ahead, but good on them for trying to renegotiate, I reckon. Um, in those circumstances where you've got other sports doing um, recut deals with TV networks, why wouldn't Channel 7 try and do that? So going back to this belligerent uh, way of going about things, as you didn't call it, Jono, but I think that's, that's sort of a description of how, how you, you portrayed it. Why doesn't Channel 7 just go to cricket and say, excuse me, guys, uh, we're in this for the long haul. It's only been a couple of years. I know you're used to dealing with Channel 9 for a thousand years. who so probably wouldn't do this to you. But we just got a discount down the road at the AFL uh, due to X, Y, Z. Uh, the numbers seem to stack up in that kind of way here. Can we just have, talk about the discount? Look, it's a fair question. And maybe or has it, that already happened? Maybe it did. And yeah, we yeah, don't right know about that. Go. And it's, yep. had, it's had to escalate to the extent that it has because they had that conversation in the AFL went, went well, which went well, and perhaps it didn't with Cricket Australia. Who knows? Hmm. I see. Well, who does know? But there'd be a lot going on behind the scenes. I'd love to see some of the correspondence. It'd be great. Look, I don't see what Channel Seven are complaining really. Uh, there, there was a unanimous agreement to field a, to to run a full Sheffield Shield competition, for example. So there you go, straight away. There's 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 a whole lot of games you can rely on. No. Geez, that'd be exciting, <laughs> exciting cricket to watch. Aren't they playing it over in South Australia? But it, it won't make early, any, early on, yeah, they it are. It won't really make any difference because there's never been any crowd for Sheffield Shield. So it'd be authentic. Or authentic. Very authentic. authentic ah, good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, no, 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 there's a difference. There'll be the 400 people who, you know, they're just the ground stuff or the whatever. smattering of applause. I do recommend an hour or two at a Sheffield Shield game, Gilly. And I'm really? only half joking. It's very pleasant. You've got this entire stadium that usually holds 50 to 100,000 people. And there's this ridiculous amount of, you know, 500 people. Yeah. It's all this cognoscenti. Lots of old blokes. Get, you know, in groups of two and one. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you take a thermos with your cup of tea? <laughs> I take the young kids, actually. That's, nice. that's my excuse. Brainwashing so, uh, them early. Exactly, mate. Exactly. That's what it's all about. Well, as a new member, Rochi, I might see you oh, out there. Yes, yes. This keeps coming up. But yes, look forward to that, Gilly. Look forward to that. With your 30% discount off yeah. your first year's Yeah, rates. anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, all right, folks, anything further to opine about the how that... Look, clearly, this is to play out, right? So I think we'll, so. we'll see it playing out. I mean, rumour is, is that Channel 9 circling, but I think the reality is they'll do a deal. It'll just be a slightly recut deal. Channel 7 will still be broadcasting the cricket. And they'll get a bit of money off the, I think the, so. off the top line. Yeah. There you go. You heard it here from Jono. So Qantas recently ended a 30-year association with the Wallabies, citing the financial impact of covid as the reason they elected not to renew their contract. So unlike Channel 7, who are trying to walk away or threatening to, Qantas are different in the sense that they have simply said, sorry, can't continue. Is this another nail in the coffin for rugby? Oh, you know it is, Paul. You know it is. But rugby's been drifting down this slippery slope for you know 20 years in Australia. They really never, they've never got a handle on what a professional game means, hmm. how to build it up, how to shore it up, and now that Qantas have, you know, understandably pulled the rug out from under them because, you know, it's pretty hard to run an airline business right now, rugby's in trouble. Lots of it, lots of it. I mean, it's, 
I'm not sure this is seismic, right, for the for the future of rugby. This is just a it's 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 almost like another thumbtack rather than another nail. Like it's nothing. It's not a biggie. There's just one of it. It's it's part of a long list of things that that roadmark the decline of rugby in this country. Could be. Um, I'm I'm more on the optimistic side about the the future of rugby in Australia and globally. I think you know the the global game's struggling a little bit as well, and a lot of the international federations are in you know deep a deep financial malaise. But I think I think there are two things about rugby, and speaking specifically about Australia. Number one is that it's still a good product. A, a good game of rugby is good to watch. It's spectacular. It's a good sport. It's it's going to be attractive in a way that field hockey or lacrosse will will never be attractive. Number two, and the um, the feature it has that, that AFL or Rugby League will never have is the international element. And when we do next have a good team, and I know that's a, a hmm. big if, but if you think back at uh, to the, the 91 and 99 Wallaby t- teams, those were iconic moments in Australian sport. And rugby was, you know, it wasn't a big sport before 1991 in Australia by any means. And it kind of had its halcyon days in that period and all we need is another good team another good world cup performance and the the game will survive i don't think it's going to go away so will you my concern is there isn't the opportunity to get that good team when you don't have grassroots being supported and when you have the afl very very effectively striking at the very heart of rugby's breeding ground i.e the private school mobs and going in and running competitions with private schools. So, you know, the, the place where I went to school, where it was, it was rugby, 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 there's now as many, if not more, Aussie rules teams as there are rugby teams. Absolutely. And, and I do think the first step in that is not finding the players of tomorrow, but finding the superstar administrator of tomorrow who can rectify that. And then the rest will follow. So John O'Neill version 2.0 who, or whoever it is. Well, it's 3.0, isn't it? Because he had two cracks at running rugby. <laughs> I'm not so sure about what you say, Dave, about the product, though. I mean, you're setting a pretty low bar if you say that field hockey and lacrosse um, <laughs> are not as good as rugby. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think it's got some fundamental structural issues, both with the product and also with the organisation. I think until it changes um, some of the, the rules, which you would think would be fairly easy tweaks, but for whatever reason, it being such a Northern Hemisphere-dominant game, they won't make those changes. For example, mm. keeping the ball in play a little bit more, getting rid of the dominance of the scrum and the line-out, making it more attractive for a spectator. I think that's a fundamental issue. Um, I also think in Australia there's a, a big issue. You talk about you know, the, the breeding ground of rugby players traditionally and the heartland of it. That is, I guess, the private school... Um, traditionally. Traditionally, yep. Yep. and it's no longer the case. I mean, it's very much a Pacific Islander sport these days at, at um, spectator level. And, you know, that's something that I think rugby is really struggling with its identity at the moment and finding out what its true identity is. I think you, I don't know, I don't agree with you on the Islander point, Simon, but I think the, the big thing they need to change, it's not rules, it's the salary cap. And they don't have the guts to do it. What they need to do is cut all of the players' salary by 75% and recognise they need to actually support. This is a game. You know, and no player is bigger than the game. And the thing that's bringing down Australian rugby, the thing that's bringing down European rugby, are the, 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 the need, the players' unions, trying to defend million-dollar salaries instead of trying to defend the honour of playing for your state and for your country. Steve, the game, went, that. the game went professional 35 years, uh, 25 years ago, mate. They can't afford to right now, Paul. Mm. That's what's going to do them in. They will become, you know, honestly, it'll be like lacrosse and you'll end up with you know, Sydney University playing against the University of Toronto. And uh, that'll be you know, the big international fixture when uh, a group of people get billeted 
out to, to homes across Sydney. Just to be very, <laughs> just to be very clear to our, our our hockey and our lacrosse fans who listen, we we, are, we do enjoy those sports. This is unfortunately, um, yeah. Look, I, I I don't know. I just don't see them bouncing back. I, I see it going back to a, to an era not that long ago where club rugby was the was the, the strong uh, domestic level. And then it, feed, and it feeds kind of straight in the international side, which I don't think is a great model. But at the moment, it seems to be that's where the strength is. Club rugby is well supported, at least in Sydney, as far as I'm aware, uh, in, in the, what I'll call the rugby heartland states. Uh, do, we, you know, do we need super rugby? Is it, is it super rugby that's created that situation, Steve-O, where there's, there's expectations of millions of dollars? And then you've got you know, the, the rule where you can't go to... If you go to Europe, you're not playing for the Wallabies. I don't know. Is this, Steve, is you're exactly nodding your head right. There. Exactly right, Paul. Exactly right. The, uh, you know, cl- they need to go back to club rugby, and they don't have the guts. They don't have the guts. It's a bit like what we were talking about with Channel Seven ne- needing to support uh, a local competition. And I'm not, I'm not mm. saying it's club rugby and amateur hour. I'm actually saying our clubs are pretty damn good right now. You know, invest in the game, not those individuals, not the two dozen players. They're not the game. It's the thousands of people who want to watch it and support it. That's the game. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the club scene in Sydney is still quite vibrant on the mm. northern beaches with Manly and Warringah. It's still a, a big deal. It's a subculture. It's not It's not a mainstream culture, but it's still very strong there. That's all you need. And it's broad. I mean, there's the <clears throat> Pacific Island community, community, but there are a lot of English and Irish immigrants in the northern beaches area. There's a lot of South African immigrants there, and they, they're still into their rugby big time. I agree. But, I mean, ultimately, money talks and without wanting to go back to the TV issue, but it's relevant here as well. I mean, rugby cannot sell its product at the moment. So Foxtel pulled out of negotiating a new TV rights deal. Mm. There was talk about Optus coming in, Optus haven't. They still haven't signed a broadcast partner. So at the moment, the most recent rumour is that Channel 9 is looking at doing a deal. It's going to be a way discounted deal on the money that Foxtel was um, talking about paying. And it'll be Channel 9 doing the Wallabies and Stan broadcasting Super Rugby, whatever Super Rugby might look like next year. So it goes back to the original question, is this the, you know, the nail in the coffin, call it what you will? Because we're starting to describe what, what I would suggest is a death spiral. If they don't have the game to sell to a broadcaster, then there isn't the money to pay the salaries, to attract the good players, to get the young people to be interested in playing rugby, to support the young people playing rugby, which is why I have a concern for the sport. It won't disappear. It won't disappear in this country. It just can't. It can't. Not for a hundred years. You but can... it, it 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 has gone down a notch in the last five, let's call it, and it will, I think, go down another notch or two in the next five to ten. Yeah, no doubt. I'm not disputing that, but I I do think that they do still have this shimmering jewel of. A concept of you the like World the Cup, oh, okay. oh, a, yeah. a great game. But the World Cup last year was fantastic. It was mm. brilliant, it was. and it's it's something that it's you know it's maybe the second biggest football competition on the planet, and it comes around every four years. And mm. it's uh, what an advertisement for the game. Stephen's looking very incredulous. <laughs> oh, you've got to be kidding! It usually you've does. Got to be. The second largest football. Yeah, oh, you're joking. Yeah, you know, the Super Bowl beats it. I mean, every week of the NFL beats uh, that that Rugby World Cup. I I, I just think you know. It, there was a time when tug of war was an Olympic sport. <laughs> there was, okay? there was. That's that's what Bring we're back. looking at for rugby. <laughs> well, there was rugby a time when rugby was an Olympic sport. There was a time when the when the, uh, rugby was uh, an Olympic sport too, Steve-O. Here's, here's, a, here's a trivia question for you. Who is the current Olympic rugby champion? Gold medalist or whatever. The most recent rugby gold medalist. Japan. New Zealand. <laughs> no Japan, no New Zealand, Steve-O. Got a guess? 
USA. Correct, USA. Ah. Yes, held that back very well. Ah. Oh, you, you weren't <laughs> sure. Good stuff. Uh, and it's not just Australia. Um, you know, I came across some, some uh, blatherings from the... Uh, Bill Sweeney, the uh, the RFU's chief executive, who was moaning about the revenue loss uh, with COVID, uh, not getting fans into Twickenham, and also the Irish rugby, uh, they made represent- representations uh, to the Dáil, their parliament over there not that long ago, about the threats to the, quote, very existence of professional rugby in that country. Um, so, you know, it's not, not just us, although I think that it's just a bit more existential uh, in Australia. Right now, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Presumably the Kiwis have got no problems whatsoever. Uh, that's another. That's another watching brief. It'll be very interesting to see how rugby manages over the next uh, next little while. Uh, to the shootout now, where we cover uh, a few topics in uh, in shorter form. Uh, look, many Australian sports fans would have felt both extremes of emotions very recently with the passing of Dean Jones, occurring while we were commemorating 20 years since the joyous occasion that was the Sydney Olympics. And for me, what unified both was the uh, the nostalgia that went with with both of those those events. And I can't, kind of found myself thinking more deeply about what nostalgia is, at risk of getting too deep. And so, you know, what need does it fulfil, especially when it comes to the sporting side of things? Um, you know, why do we look back with such fondness? Like we, we're all looking back at the Olympics, obviously. And and the first thing that the became available when Dino's news of Dino uh, broke was videos of his you know, his, his exploits. Is, is it sort of a return? What's the thoughts? Is it a return to happier times in our lives or is it, is it just happy because we've filtered out bad stuff? It's just looking back to when we were younger. Don't, don't be afraid of going deep, Roachie. Ah, this is great. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> like, I think it's all of the above. This show is um, deep. And it's interesting, isn't it? We were talking about this earlier off air, but um, I think we all felt similar things uh, on both on, when news of both things broke. Um, for me, I think part of it is definitely uh, aging, getting a little bit older and looking back at know where you were for example during the sydney olympics and thinking to yourself can that really be 20 years ago crikey Mm. um and for dino yeah look i mean he was a hero to a lot of um people of that vintage and certainly one of mine steve you look like you were gagging to say something there no look i i appreciate the opportunity to go deep paul i think we're all suffering from uh from grief i think um you know there's there's some denial there's some anger there's some bargaining there's some depression there's some acceptance and I'm I'm going to lean into some uh, work by a, a guy named David Kessler. You're going to lean in. A sixth stage. I am. Wow. I am. Uh, he said a sixth stage of grief was finding meaning. And I reckon when you look back and think about the grief that you're feeling about remembering Dean Jones, it's about the the meaning he brought to watching sport. There was a dash. There was adventure. There was not knowing what was going to happen hmm. next. There was hope. Yeah, it was exciting. You know, I think we're, we're all coping with a bit of grief. Yeah, I, I agree with that analysis as well. Because when you think of Dean Jones, you kind of think about everything that you as a young, you know, adolescent male wanted to be talented, charismatic, courageous. How'd you go with that, Gilly? Not very well. <laughs> <laughs> Never had the same amount of hair as Great Dean hair. Jones. <laughs> Come on, there was but, a time um, once. But it gives you, it gives you, you know, they they were these kind of X factor characters, and they loomed large in in the in the years where you, the, the the kind of formative years for us as for us as teenagers. So, and it goes a little bit back to what Simon was saying. It does make you aware of your own mortality as well. It's like when um, Russell Crowe's character dies in Gladiator. It just kind of sucks <laughs> the life out of you. <laughs> what? Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> well, I. I Big statement. I think uh, Glenn Maxwell's a modern 
modern version of what Dean Jones stood for back then. Bits of renegade, bit sure. on the outer, not in the pockets of the administrators. Had some amazing skill and flair that made people watch the game. I'd agree with that. Yeah, and would you know take on the great players of his time. That was the mm. big thing about Dino, wasn't it? He took on the West Indies, which I think we all love. That famous incident where he asked Curtly Ambrose to take Indeed. his white wristbands <laughs> so off. Indeed. We were there when that happened. It, that didn't go uh, well for was, Dino. That was Steve Wall. That was Steve Wall. No, it was Dean Jones. No, it was Dean. No, I think they both did. did. Uh, I think they both Steve, did. Uh, that was definitely, definitely Dean Jones. Uh, definitely uh, Dean yeah. Jones. At the SCG. Steve did something else to to annoy uh, Curtly. I'm sure. Um, I love it. We have to fact check our nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> I think you need to fact check your nostalgia. That's, that's how good it is. It just whitewashes everything and it conforms nicely to the memory that we want. Speaking of memories, how's your memory of the Sydney Olympics, Steve-O? Sorry, I've got to bring this up yet again. Uh, just rubbing it in. Look, I will say, so... He was in London, folks. Just for everyone listening at home. I was in London. Everyone else was in Sydney. I had the best coverage of the Olympic Games of all, because, <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Dave was in, in, in London as well. Oh, we had the best coverage. BBC covered all the best sports. Yeah, but we weren't there, no. Hockey and lacrosse and so forth. That's right. Uh, that was it was a good time. So, no, it's interesting, but it's interesting that a community sort of goes, "Wow, that was really good." And all the that, uh, the talk is as much about the mood of the city as it is about the events themselves. I mean, the whole Kathy thing and that everyone sort of everything coalesces around that that event and her lighting the flame, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how people also look back at the the mood, the vibe, the the manners, the manner in which we all held ourselves and carried ourselves and related with each other. And and plus it was indisputably the best Olympics ever. That's I mean, right. Nobody argues with that. It has that official imprimatur. And it did. I mean, there's been a couple of articles written about it, but the Olympics did change after that because this was pre-September 11, don't forget. Yes. And so you could have an Olympics without that sort of threat of all the constant security alert, which It wasn't zero because there was the bombing at Atlanta, uh, the previous games, where a couple yeah. of people died, one or two people died. Yeah. Um, so there was a little bit of an overtime, but a nothing s- like... A simpler time. Nothing. It was. It was. Oh, for simpler times. Uh, now, next in the shootout, Gilly, you wanted to talk about golf. Some bloke has done well in golf that you wanted to mention. Yeah, so we Rochambeau, have... Someone Rochambeau, I think his Bryson name was. Deschambeau. Rochambeau. Yeah, Rochambeau. <laughs> Bryson Deschambeau, who's, ah, Deschambeau, who's kind of revolutionised in a very short period of time how golf is played. And he's had this background of being the nutty professor of golf. So it's already... he's he, He's done things differently ever since he started playing golf. But... Um, during the the pandemic shutdown, he, he he's a he's a trained physicist, very strong scientific background, and he decided that he was going to add fifty yards to his drives by bulking up, eating anything and everything he wanted to, which is all fine as long as he spent the other half of the day lifting weights. Mm. And he put on uh, how many pounds? Simon? Forty pounds. Forty yeah. pounds. He's massive for the benefit of those that live in Australia. What's that in kilos? Twenty-five kilos or twenty yeah. kilos, I think. And he wasn't, he wasn't a small guy before this, and now he's just a unit with a neck the size of most people's thighs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's hitting the ball. Uh, he's carrying the ball 350, 360 yards and just muscling it all over the course. So the, the traditional wisdom for the US Open has always been that you have to hit fairways to win it. And he hit something like 40% of fairways because even when he was stuck in this long grass, he's such a beast, such an animal, he just kind of muscled the ball onto the green and, and won. It's a bit of a, a bit of a game changer, I agree, um, to some extent. Although, I mean, I, I love watching him and I think he's fantastic for golf because he's shaking things up and he's doing things a little bit differently. So making the other players think about that. Some of the other quirks that he has, he uses really thick grips on his uh, golf clubs, which 
just look ridiculous, but he's got really big mitts, big hands on him, so he can probably get away with that. Um, he uses clubs that are all of the same length, so his three iron is the same length as his pitching wedge, which no one would ever think of doing because he wants his swing arc or his swing plane to be the same, no matter what club he's hitting. I guess so, for the non-golfers, such as myself, so by having the same length, you have the same stance, you have the same angle of attack at the ball, basically, yeah. so your motion, is your exactly swing motion the is the same. Okay. Rightio, I think I get that. Yeah, look, I think... Uh I, I hear what Simon's saying, but it's all a bit of history repeating, really, isn't it? I yeah, mean, that's what I remember Jack Jack Nicholas playing a game with which Ben Hogan was not familiar because he hit it so far, and, uh, and then Tiger Woods came along and he would answer any question uh, as long as it wasn't about his fitness regime. Well, I was, almost any question, I suppose there were other topics <laughs> as well. But he again, <laughs> he also hit it way further, and they started Tiger-proofing courses. So, are we going to see them Bryson-proofing courses? What do you think? I think that's a fair point, and and what I was going to say there was you're not you're never going to see a long driving uh, winner or a record holding long driver winner winning on the PGA Tour. There's always going to be that extra element of skill and being great at the short game, which is going to apply. So whilst he is pushing the envelope and changing things up, I don't think it's going to be a revolutionary change. Yeah, so it's this... more the scientific approach because he doesn't when he's when he's putting, he doesn't read greens in the traditional sense of looking at the slope with his caddy. He's they've got topographical maps of huh. each green, and they, he's <laughs> almost he's literally making a mathematical physics equation calculation. And, yeah. And, on that basis, decides how hard he's got to hit it and what direction the ball needs to go in. And how he does that in his mind, I have Human no idea. Human computer, isn't he? Go on, Steve. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, let's not overreact, though. He's won one major, yeah. right? Brooks Kepka's won more in the last... Now, mind you, Brooks Kepka looks a bit more like a, an NFL player than a traditional golfer as well. So maybe we're seeing you know, the muscle-bound linebacker strategy you know, take over for a while. But he's got to win a few more before we start, uh, you know... Uh, calling for the end of golf he's great to watch it's, it's not like lacrosse <laughs> <laughs> right well i'm glad we resolved i think we resolved something there the evolution of golf continues is that kind of the the bottom I think line so, yeah. yeah watch this space oh, good to know gilly i'm going to throw to you again because i was intrigued by your observations around uh, an apology that uh, that our mate uh, novak's Djokovic made novak who Djokovic. Djokovic. Yeah, did sure. I, I went for the hard C there, didn't I? Sorry okay. about that. Um, after he uh, pummeled a lines person, one of the few lines people at the US Open, if you recall our mm. last show, we were talking about how it was Hawkeye everywhere, except for the courts one and two, uh, into the throat of a lines person and had a bit of an apology to make. And you had an issue with that apology? Or just, you had an observation to make? It, it just made me think of bad sporting apologies because, I mean, obviously he'd done the wrong thing. He then dodged his post-match press conference and he would have been very hot under the collar because he had just been ejected from the tournament which I'm sure wasn't a pleasant experience for him uh, but then he apologized via a Twitter message which said all of the right things but it was it was kind of so anodyne and obviously drafted by somebody else hmm. that it really it didn't go down well and I guess you know he has prior in terms of his behavior not being great but it did make me think about sporting apologies gone wrong and there have been a few of them through the um, through the decades so the one that i i remember and actually you know you you may pick me up on this as saying it wasn't actually an apology and this was lance armstrong when he um finally admitted to being a drug cheat because i don't it was kind of like the Fonz saying sorry or <laughs> i was wrong in happy days he couldn't really i mean he was trying to apologize but he couldn't really do it and again That's it fell it fell incredibly flat. Wasn't um, he saying everyone else did it? It was just such a badly... Well, that's he was defense. just saying that just 
<clears throat> it was basically saying, yeah, they weren't as good as at cheating as as I was, and he yeah. yeah he didn't come across as particularly um sorry about what it's he. It's a had good done. point. Was it? Did he actually set it to to for that to be? Because that's one of those where were you moments. I remember I was at I was at work. Had to had to uh, commandeer a meeting room with a big TV, big TV. It was at lunchtime, and and just sat in front of that eating the sambo for forty five minutes, watching that <laughs> enthralled all by myself. Um, but yeah, it was just a statement of facts. It was just setting out. It was conceding, wasn't it? Yeah, and conceding. I think he was backed into a corner by that stage. Like he didn't yeah. really have any option. It wasn't like he was to... was about to sue him for zillions or something, was it? Yeah, and he's. I was just reading um, before the show. He's actually he's paid over a hundred million in damages since wow. then. So he has he has paid the price. Wow. But as an apology, it was it was B grade. Mm. But I, I sort of went to uh, another apology that I, I thought probably didn't quite get it done but I, I was going to say I sort of feel for some sports people making an apology I was going to talk about David Warner oh, following yeah. after uh, he was apologising for Sandpaper Gate and he had a really tough act to follow because Steve Smith had broken down he had his father behind him and the hand on the shoulder and uh, yeah and and honestly I think I think Warner, Warner had a, a no win apology situation there you know, he did his best. Uh, his wife stood behind him. He, he went through everything his PR um, advice has told him to do, but it just never quite cut the mustard. Well, his wife, just point of order, his wife didn't stand behind him. She stood in the crowd behind the media with the PR lady uh, with the arms around. Roxy. I'm just saying Thank you very yeah. much. I, I didn't get Djokovic right. I'm not going to mm. wait. wait. Um, yeah, it was just, it, that was a PR disaster as much as it was. It, 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 the apology was heartfelt, but it was written. The, the other component to that one, Steve, is afterwards, after the written bit, after the read-out statement, he took questions. He, he invited questions. Yeah. And there were three or four or five questions. And to each of them, he said something along the lines of, I'm just here to, to you know, own up to my mistake, take accountability for my actions. Next question. I'm just here. To, and so then he walked out and he got heckled by the media as he walked out. So that, I think, that was the... Sting in the tail of a you know a bit of a sloppy PR exercise, but as you say, Steve, what's he supposed to do? I don't know. And can, after Bancroft had given one, where you sort of gone, yeah, sorry. I, mean, I suppose he wasn't the personality. But but this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, how do you win when you're a sports person now? Not that you have to win. I think you need to own up and say sorry when you need to. But there's so much PR, and we don't let players show their personality anymore. Uh, I think it's a tough ask. Yep, and I'll stick with cricket. I mean, I was I was contemplating the Warner one as well, but Shane Warn. Uh, with the diuretic, of course. You know, my mum made me do it, or <laughs> mum gave it to me, I suppose. <laughs> Diet uh, pill. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to go any more detail on that, yeah. do you, really? Yeah, at least it was came across as authentic. Whether the actual answer was authentic, I don't know, but uh, it came across as such. Yeah, my one, uh, definitely not authentic, I don't think. But Tiger Woods, when he finally fell oh. on his sword after his uh, personal issues. Get out in, the violins. Back in 2010. But just remembering how excruciatingly oh, awkward that was. Yeah. So, And it was a... I think it's an example where if you're going to make a public apology as anyone famous and particularly sportsmen, you need to come across as being genuine and it just didn't come across as genuine at all because he was reading it. He didn't take questions and it was just horrible. Just Do you remember how he, had, he was wearing um, bad badly fitting clothing on purpose <laughs> to appear more kind of humble and you know what I don't I know do what, I don't that. know what he was trying to do, but I remember yeah. watching it live before this had come out I was going. Those are terrible pants, and that shirt's just like <laughs> it's a bad shirt. And then it came out that it had all been kind of that was part of the apology. Yeah, I'm and sure the hug with his mum at the end of it. Well, oh, the uh, the moral scary. of the story, folks, sports people in particular, is to behave yourself, and which leads us nicely to red card, yellow card.
Yes, red card, yellow card, where we enjoy bringing up uh, indiscretions of sports people uh, where they've mucked up off the field of play. They'd rather forget things, but we make sure that we all remember them. Uh, who's volunteering? Who's volunteering to go first? Who's got a good one? I'll John, go first. John O. Yeah, man. so initially I was actually going to nominate Mad Monday for red card because there just haven't been any incidents. I mean, I think in, yeah. in coronavirus times, yeah. the players are not out there socialising. Okay. But um, I've come up with a slightly better one Thank than that. Thank goodness for that. Thankfully. Darius Boyd, I'm not sure if you've seen. So ex-Brisbane Broncos captain, uh-huh. uh, played the Broncos played the North Queensland Cowboys on the weekend, their final game of the season, and the Broncos just have had an anisoribilis. They've come last, won the wooden spoon, just an awful season. Their coach, Anthony Seabold, has been sacked, Gone. and Darius has been part of that. I think culturally he never got on with Anthony Seabold. And part of the push to part of the, get rid yeah, of Seabold. Yeah, and part of the problem with the club. He hasn't played particularly uh-huh. well. So... There's a spotlight on Darius, but it's his last game, you see. And also, Darius and his girlfriend are pregnant with their second or third bub. So he decides, having just finished the game, to do a gender reveal by kicking a football, which was either going to have blue dust in it or pink dust. (laughs) And so the players surround Darius as he's doing it. This is literally as they've finished the game, having lost another game. So the final hoot is gone. Yeah. A minute or two? Everyone's still on the field? A couple of minutes. Everyone's still on the field. The cameras are are going. He kicks the ball, and (laughs) and lo and behold, pink dust goes everywhere. And the players start celebrating like they've just won the premiership. (laughs) It was such a bad look. Horrendous. It's off the field of play because it was after after the the 80 minutes. So yellow card, pink card? Pink card. Yeah, Yeah. wow, interesting. Go on, Steve. Uh, That is harsh. I'm going to object to that. The the, the sport is about more than the results. And this is a guy that's revealing some of himself and his team's banded to support him. No, I I object to any any punishment whatsoever. Julie noted. Carry on. What's your red card, yellow card? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, mine's a bit... Mine's a bit rubbish this month, I've got to tell you. I, I, I'm going to And you just complain about Jono's. I know, I know. But I, you know, this one, I, I was trying to determine if this actually, you, you tell me whether this qualifies. The Sydney Cricket Ground have officially unveiled oh, yeah. a new mascot. It disqualifies. Right? It disqualifies. It's, well, it, it, look, I understand a team uh, unveiling a mascot, right? If, you know, you, you might be. Uh, you know, some sort of aeroplane or some sort of animal or, you know, some... Ah, but but A sports a ground. ground. And it's a cute little uh, mascot of the clock tower. All right? Mm. And don't get me wrong, I think one, it satisfies one criteria of a mascot, which is the desire to go and punch it. <laughs> <laughs> surely, surely it should have been a bucket of hot chips or something like yeah. that. <laughs> Overpriced hot chips at that. You've got to be careful what you say, Gilly. You might be a, a, a out of membership before you actually get to use it. Yeah, that's. The, I did see that, Riles. That's that's almost a red. What are they thinking? Red card, I reckon. Oh, yeah, it's almost <laughs> a red card. It's, a, it's unprecedented, isn't it? A sports ground having a mascot. And not just a nominal, yeah, we've driven a, drawn a nice little picture. One of those little 3D things that you can stick on a person. They go running around chasing Siggy the Swan and Tarman <laughs> and that pink six that runs around as well. Hell's bells. What a stable of mascots they've got there at Moore Park in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Gilly, get us out of here. 
Well, it's it has been hard to find good red yellow card mm. red card yellow card action in the Sign last the week. Times. So I really spent a lot of time looking for one and generally came up um, empty handed, including reading the Sun online for oh. about half an hour. <laughs> last, which is still got nothing. Interesting and revealing in its own Daily Mail. But uh, yeah, right, that's but coming up. Just tonight. nothing out there. Just crickets. And so I have to go back to the you know the English footballers who invited some Icelandic models into their hotel room. Mm. Um, uh, so they, they penetrated the bubble or pierced the bubble, whatever the, the right phraseology is. And uh, these two English players, Phil Foden and Mason Greenwood, were stood down from the next game. And it, it's, this is one of those stories where it's just amazing what people of a certain generation put on video because the whole thing oh. was captured on mobile phone and, and video. So there's a great... And uploaded onto social media. Uploaded onto so social media. Actually, in this case, I think Phil Foden and Mason Greenwood were possibly the victims. I think the mm. Icelandic models ah, were maybe a little bit, bit of a honey trap. Yep, I think mm. it was definitely a, a honey trap. So it could be a red card, but I think I think they were probably more victims here. So I'll go with a go with a yellow for the footy players. For the footy players, yeah, I go a Viking clap for that one. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, look, agree, agree. Uh, thin on the ground in quality. So I've actually had to go with. Uh, I'm nominating the Daily Mail, Jono, uh, because. Wow. Uh, I found something in my feed, uh, on, my, on our Twitter feed, I should say, uh, about Buddy Franklin. I thought, oh, radio, yep, Buddy, I'm, I'm a bit of a Swans fan. What's what's Buddy up to? And there's a photo of him looking fairly just, you know, CV type. Here we go. This is, I'm, I have to quote this. On Thursday, Lance Buddy Franklin looked less than pleased to be on rubbish duty as he hauled a large bin outside his Rose Bay home. <laughs> the 33-year-old footy star showed off his tattooed arms in a beige T-shirt as he took out the rubbish. But he completed his casual ensemble with black shorts and a pair of beige sandals. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story. And a photo. Wow. That... I can't believe it. The clock, t- the clock tower was the best one. <laughs> and the recycling bin as well? Oh. Or was just the rubbish? Oh, it didn't go into that detail. Right. Yeah, I'm just looking forward to developments as uh, council cleanup comes, uh, comes around in December. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, so on that happy note, uh, that ends red card, yellow card. It also ends uh, for and against for another show. So goodbye to you, Stephen Riley. See you all. I, I will suffer those six stages of grief between now and when we meet again. <laughs> Thanks for Very that. uplifting. And good, goodbye, Simon Johnson. Very uplifting way of ending the show. Thanks, Ross. Uh, I reckon. See you, Richie. See you later, David Gill. Thanks for your company. See you, Richie. Going to read The Sun Online. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Great, we'll spend it time. Thanks very much for your company. We'll do it all in the, again in a month's time. Until then, it's bye for now.